Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah chapter 10. We might be able to say that diplomacy and skill in negotiation carried Zenith in his relationship with the Lamanites for the first 12 years of his reign. Then after a terrible battle in the 13th year, and the first in Mormon's abridgment as we have it, that we read about in the previous chapter, Zenith makes significant changes to the way that he operates, and we'll read about that in chapter 10. While he and his people did return to their agrarian way of life after this first battle, and they enjoyed a period of peace for 22 years, as we will read in this chapter in verse 5, they also did several things during this period of peace that helped them prepare for battle, should it come to that again. We read that they made weapons in verse 1. They set guards round about the land in verse 2. Then as a new Lamanite king was installed, and the specter of battle approached once again, Zenith employed spies. He then used other specific strategies, which we will discuss in this chapter. This chapter also reveals another dimension of preparation by the people. Although their spiritual lives are not discussed in this chapter directly, uh, we, we have a certain impression of these people that's based upon what Limhi told us about them in Mosiah 7, uh, and also uh, what we will later learn about them in Mosiah chapter 21. We do at least read in this chapter that they, quote, did spin and toil and work as a people, and that this led to a measure of peace and prosperity. All of this, then, led to a state of preparedness that allowed the people of Limhi to go against the Lamanites, quote, in the strength of the Lord. And this was a phrase that was used in the previous chapter, Mosiah chapter 9, and it's used twice in this chapter. The results of this war, as we come to the end of this chapter, are the same as in the previous chapter. There is an additional dimension of preparation that is outlined here, however, and it's ideological. Uh, Zenith contrasts his desire for a pastoral and a peaceful kind of self-contained way of life with the more aggressive tendencies of the Lamanites. And he explains this to the people as he prepares them for war. And he says that the Lamanites felt justified in their aggression because of the traditions of their fathers. Now, this is a grievance narrative, really, which justified the Lamanites in their malevolence and their malfeasance towards the Nephites. As Zenith instructs the people in this matter, he conveys a very powerful lesson to us. He shows us how it is possible for us to cultivate beliefs or stories or explanations for our observations in life 
that are actually completely out of alignment with reality. We can thereby create a revisionist history, as it's sometimes called, that spans generations by being passed along from one trusted party to another. And this is eventually accepted as ironclad truth. Since we have recently read the history of Lehi and his family, as they are provided to us in the small plates of Nephi, Zenith provides a dramatic contrast between the story we have come to know, uh, this story that begins with Lehi's departure from Jerusalem and the transfer of ruling power from him to Nephi, the contrast between that and the Lamanite story, which Zenith provides in this chapter, and it reads very differently from the one that we read in the small plates. This revisionist history story that is passed down from one Lamanite generation to another says that the Lamanites were wronged, quote-unquote, by the Nephites. And this is a phrase that's used three times in this chapter. This sense of feeling wronged, which again comes from a story that is not true in the first place, seems to lower the threshold of susceptibility to the chain of events that follow in the way that Zenith describes them. Subsequent verses in this chapter describe the Lamanites as being wroth with the Nephites, and that phrase is used three times. And this ultimately leads them to feeling justified in their hatred and murderous aggression towards the Nephites, as we will read in verse 17. And thus, they have taught their children that they should hate them, and that they should murder them, and that they should rob and plunder them and do all they could to destroy them. Therefore, they have an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. All of this destruction, once again, is generated from the false stories that the Lamanites held dear. Zenith shows us in this chapter that while the Nephites are cultivating seeds in the ground, the Lamanites are cultivating this grievance narrative in their hearts, passing these beliefs down from one generation to another. Perhaps the most fundamental personal lesson from this cultural phenomenon is that we must continually compare our personal beliefs with actual reality. Elder Lawrence Corbridge recently put it this way in a BYU devotional that really has already become an evergreen, I think. He calls this address Stand Forever, and it was given last January in 2019. He said, quote, When you act badly, and we can think of the Lamanites acting badly here, you may think you are bad when in truth you are usually mistaken. You are just wrong. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs, Rather, the challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That is the challenge. Well, with the enlightening influence of the Holy Ghost, we can keep ourselves aligned in this manner and protected from the deleterious effects of false beliefs and of grievance narratives. This relationship with the Holy Ghost is maintained and retained, to use King Benjamin's word, through faith on the moment-to-moment enabling power of Jesus Christ, a faith that leads to daily repentance. If our internal beliefs and stories and narratives are not informed by grievances, but instead by gratitude, then we will not be led down this perilous path that Zenith outlines here. Well, this chapter, Mosiah chapter 10, will bring Zenith's first-person account to an end. And as he tells us twice in verse 10 and in 22, he has become old. And we've learned a great deal about and from this complex scriptural character, Zenith, in Mosiah chapters 9 and 10.
The effect of Zenith's leadership style is certainly on display in this chapter. In the final verse of this chapter, unfortunately, we will read of a decision that leads to a very different kind of leadership with the transfer of the throne to Zenith's son and successor, Noah. Now to look at the structure of this chapter, we can see that the first five verses continue with the story as it ended in the previous chapter, where uh, the, the Nephites were successful in battle against the Lamanites, and a period of peace ensues. We find that this period of peace lasts for 22 years. In verse 5, it says, continual peace in the land for the space of 22 years. And this is the section where we learn about other uh, types of preparation that uh, were employed during this period of peace. Then the story turns uh, from this period of peace in verse 6, and the triggering event for this is explained uh, in this way. It came to pass that King Laman died and his son began to, began to reign in his stead. So with the passage uh, of, of the, the original King Laman that Zenith uh, made a treaty with, uh, a new king is installed who seems to be more warlike in his tendencies towards the Nephites. And so uh, this new uh, Lamanite king prepares his people for battle. Then we find Zenith preparing his people for battle. In verse 9, he provides us with some very interesting pieces of information about the way in which he prepares his people for battle. Then he pauses from that uh, and, and shows us how he informed the people about the, the Lamanite ideology. And he goes into this in verses 11 through 18, and in so doing, teaches us a great deal about the motives of the Lamanites and the relationship between these two peoples. Uh, we've read a lot previously about the relationship between Nephi and his brothers. And now here it is again playing out between these two peoples. We'll cover this passage in quite a lot of depth. And then we find in the final section of this chapter, which extends from verses 19 through 22, really 19 through 21, we might say, uh, this is where Zenith and his people are, are victorious against the Lamanite invasion. And uh, so this chapter ends in a similar manner to the previous chapter where things begin peacefully and end in war and they go into battle in the strength of the Lord and the Lamanites, or excuse me, the Nephites are victorious at the end of both of these chapters. Now at the end, the very end of this chapter, we see the conferral of the kingdom from Zenith to his son Noah. Here Noah is not named. Mormon names him later in the next chapter. Uh, uh, Zenith simply says, I did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons, therefore I say no more. Now returning to verse 1, And it came to pass that we again began to establish the kingdom, and we again began to, to possess the land in peace. So he says again because he's referring to returning to this way of life, that he and his people had established for 12 years prior to the war that they had with the Lamanites. And now that war is over, and as we begin this new chapter, they are again uh, going back to this way of life. However, there's a contrast here, because not only does he go back to that way of life, but he says in verse 1, as he continues, 
and I caused that there should be weapons of war made of every kind, that thereby I might have weapons for my people against the time the Lamanites should come up again to war against my people. So this is a little different. We we have come to know Zenith as a, as a great persuader and negotiator and diplomat. But these means for interfacing with the Lamanites seem to be out. Uh, they are now making weapons and they are readying themselves for another um, experience like the one that they just went through. So that's the first change in this regard, is that uh, they make weapons of war. Now we read of the second change that Zenith implements in verse 2. He says, And I set guards round about the land, that the Lamanites might not come upon us again unawares and destroy us. And thus I did guard my people and my flocks and keep them from falling into the hands of our enemies. So a new period of peace that is similar to the one that preceded the war in Mosiah chapter 9, but with those two major changes, they are preparing for another war that could come in the future. Then in verse 3, with those conditions in place, it says, And it came to pass that we did inherit the land of our fathers for many years, yea, for the space of twenty and two years. This kind of reminds us then, once again, that this place that they are in, uh, that Zenith and his people traveled to is a place that their fathers did uh, in, inhabit and settle in the first place. Verse 4, And I did cause that the men should till the ground and raise all manner of grain and the manner of fruit of every kind. And I did cause that the women should spin and toil and work and work all manner of fine linen, yea, and cloth of every kind, that we might clothe our nakedness. And thus we did prosper in the land Uh, Thus we did have continual peace in the land for the space of twenty and two years. These two descriptive verses sound somewhat similar to the previous chapter when Zenith talked about their manner of living once they settled back into the land of Nephi. And that, of course, is similar language to 2 Nephi chapter 5. So we might just say that Zenith was able to live his dream for... uh, at this 22-year period, as well as the 12-year period that preceded that, albeit with the terrible burden of, of what had happened at year 13 when they had this battle in the previous chapter. And that's, that's Zenith's story. That's his life. That's what takes him into old age. I think we can look at the power of Zenith's desire. It's on display throughout this entire story as we learn about him directly in his own words as we were told about him by Amalekai in his short passage at the end of Omni, and as we are told about Zenith by uh, Limhi. We can see that Zenith must have been a a man of of passion and desire. He was clearly someone who was persuasive. He was good at negotiation. But in this entire story, even if Zenith's desire is not fully aligned with the Lord's will, which we, we can guess that it must not be, his return back to the land of Nephi from Zarahemla is not, we don't get anything in the text that tells us that the Lord told him to go there. He seems to be leaving a place of spiritual safety, really, where it was probably King Benjamin that was reigning at that time. I think I misspoke in the previous episode, but most likely uh, when you read through Omni, it looks like it was King Benjamin that was um, reigning in Zarahemla at the time that that Zenith left, but it seems that he did something that was probably really not fully aligned with the Lord's will. 
but his desire still is realized. And I think that may be a lesson for us that we are, we are able to go with our own desires and, and in most cases realize them. And Alma will talk about that uh, much later uh, in the book of Alma. Uh, so Zenith was able to go back, did go to the land of, uh, of Nephi, and for most of his lifetime, at least, he, he was able to do what he set out to do. And the Nephites did have in this place the, the, the type of life that they sought, returning to the land of their fathers in the way that they did, even though... Mosiah had clearly been told, now this is Mosiah 1, had clearly been told by the Lord uh, to leave that place earlier. So the effect of Zenos's decision to do this upon subsequent generations, however, is of great interest. Uh, they suffered. Uh, this, of course, was also a result of their unrighteousness. Uh, and, and Limhi makes that very clear. But their suffering does seem to also be due to the decisions and the actions and the desires of Zenith as their fathers. In this chapter, we will see how subsequent generations of Lamanites are affected by the decisions of their predecessors, uh, except in this way, it, it, as I mentioned in the introduction, has to do with beliefs that are passed down from one generation to another. Uh, they have inherited these stories, and I kind of like to call it a grievance narrative because they they uh, talk about, or Zenith talks about how they feel that they have been wronged, uh, but they are not really aligned with the truth of what really occurred when Lehi left Jerusalem. Uh, yet the nature of agency seems to be that the Lord will still allow us to have and to carry beliefs and powerful stories uh, that may actually be out of alignment with reality. And that's the nature of agency. And in the same way, he allows us to follow through with desires, as in, uh, as with Zenith's case, that may also not be perfectly in alignment with his will. Now, having kind of uh, discussed my own thoughts and, and feelings about that issue, I want to move to a couple pieces of commentary. And the first is from Elder Robert D. Hales, where he talks about this way in which the Nephites lived uh, during this period of time. And we can relate it to, again, the description in the previous chapter and in the way that Nephi described their way of life when they first landed in the, the land of Nephi in Second Nephi chapter 5. Elder Robert D. Hale said this, Joyfully living within our means and preparing for the ups and downs of life helps us to be ready for the rainy day emergencies when they come into our lives. He added, Happy is the man who lives within his means and is able to save a little for future needs. As we live providently and increase our gifts and talents, we become more self-reliant. Self-reliance is taking responsibility for our own spiritual and temporal welfare and for those whom Heavenly Father has entrusted to our care. He's relating this, of course, to Zenith's um, manner of preparation. Uh, Even though it's peaceful during this 22-year period, Zenith knows that it may not always stay that way. And uh, Elder Hales is is, uh, kind of linking the bondage uh, that we can have um, in in spiritual ways, but also in temporal ways, and uh, also talking about uh, the bondage of debt, perhaps, or at least implying it there. Now, uh, to the fact that uh, Zenith and his people did live in peace for this period of time, uh, we have this from Kent Jackson and John Tanner. They say, for 22 years after the first attack by the Lamanites, Zenith and his people had peace in their land. 
During this time, Zenith organized guards to keep watch over the land, to prevent a surprise attack by the Lamanites. Zenith understood how to lead his people so that they could live in peace. Zenith and his people prospered in their righteousness because they remembered the Lord. Here now in verse 6 is where the story turns, and uh, a new king is installed in the Lamanite kingdom. Verse 6, And it came to pass that King Laman died, and his son began to reign in his stead. Now, from the previous chapter, we could guess that his son probably took on the same name title as Laman. And he began to stir his people up in rebellion against my people. Therefore, they began to prepare for war and to come up to battle against my people. So this is a disappointing eventuality. It's a new era for the Lamanites with the installment of this new king, but this also means it's a new time for Zenith and his people. And Gon is the man that Zenith originally negotiated with and entered into covenant with, and uh, who he later defeated in battle. And now here is this new king who, uh, for whatever reason, and Zenith will talk about these reasons later, uh, began to stir up his people in rebellion. Verse 7, But I had sent my spies out round about the land of Shemline. And we might say that this is the third measure uh, to add to the other two measures of, of setting guards round about and, and uh, making weapons. Zenith was ready to employ spies. Uh, so I had sent my spies out round about the land of Shemlon. Now that's a, a land that we've not heard of yet. Uh, we, we've heard so far that Zenith and his people occupied Lehi-Nephi, that city, and also the city of Shilom and the land round about. Uh, we, we can guess here then that the land of Shemlon is where the Nephites lived because uh, we can see that Zenith's spies went to that land and saw them preparing for war. So he says, Shemlon, that I might discover their preparations, that I might guard against them, that they might not come upon my people and destroy them. So he, he, gives, he gives his justification for using spies there. This will happen again later in uh, another battle in the book of Alma. And it came to pass that they came up upon the north of the land of Shilom with their numerous hosts, men armed with bows and with arrows and with swords and with scimitars and with stones and with slings, and they had their heads shaved that they were naked, and they were girded with a leathern girdle about their loins. This is a frightening image for sure. I'll just pause before moving into that further, and and this this is not overtly, I think, what is happening in the text, but we were told earlier that the, the Nephites in their manner of living were clothing their nakedness. Here in verse 8, we can see that as the Lamanites are coming to battle against the Nephites, uh, they are naked. Uh, this is um, a, an interesting contrast in, in, in as much as naked versus clothed is, I think, a very important and instructive scriptural theme, and we've had opportunity to talk about that at other times and will in the future, so we'll move on. But this image of the Lamanites leaving the land of Shemlon after they had prepared for war and coming up to the land of Shilom, where the Nephites are, uh, would have been frightening indeed. This is numerous hosts, and we can see that their armaments are substantial and that their appearance is frightful. Now, here's something from Hugh Nibley as to their appearance. He said, you notice the standard equipment here, the leather clothing. They had the equipment and their heads shaved, and they were naked except for the leather garments they had on. They were trying to inspire terror, of course, and this is a very important thing. The purpose of the military, of course, 
is to break the enemy's will, not to destroy them. The Lamanites don't want to destroy the Nephites. They want the Nephites to work for them. They want to enslave them. This is uh, The word destroy does get used a lot in the scriptural text where it says that one people wanted to destroy the other people. The Lamanites wanted to destroy the Nephites. But Nibley is, is being a little bit more subtle here, saying there's probably more nuance to it than that. Uh, enslaving was, was the goal. And so that's why this, this image of them uh, is so fearful and that that is actually part of their strategy. Now in this next, sec- next section of this chapter, we, we learned something about Zenith's strategy. Uh, we, we've learned previously about his preparation, uh, how he prepared his people for battle with weapons and with guards and with spies. Uh, and all of this preceded his going against the Lamanites in the strength of the Lord, the phrase that we will uh, read twice uh, in this chapter we can see that Zenith's strategy was was a way in which he, uh, we, we might say, engaged in best practices whenever he could. He did a lot of temporal preparation uh, prior to, um, maybe we could say, acquiring or qualifying for the strength of the Lord. So there's definitely something instructive in that. So now that battle is really imminent... Uh, we find what it is that Zenith did as the Lamanites were approaching them in verse 9. And it came to pass that I caused, so we're still hearing this straight from Zenith, that the women and children of my people should be hid in the wilderness. And I also caused that all my old men that could bear arms, and also all my young men that were able to bear arms, should gather themselves together to go to battle against the Lamanites. And I did place them in their ranks, every man according to his age." Todd Kerr wrote this in an article called Ancient Aspects of Nephite Kingship. Impressive were King Zenith's heroics while defending his kingdom against Lamanite invasion, including guards placed round about the land and spies. When the Lamanites finally attacked, Zenith led virtually the entire male population into battle. Thus, although Zenith's people went up in the strength of the Lord to battle, victory was due in no small part to King Zenith's tactical prowess and battlefield valor. So we can add that to my earlier mention of Zenith's uh, best practices in preparing the people, that when the time came closer, he also used best practices, we might say, uh, in on the battlefield itself. Now verse 10, And it came to pass that we did go up to battle against the Lamanites, and I, even I, in my old age... So Zenith is crediting himself and making it clear that it's somewhat exceptional for him as the king and somewhat exceptional for him in his age to be going up into battle uh, with his men against the Lamanites. In the previous chapter, he gave us the impression that it was exceptional for him, even him, the king, to help to bury the dead. Then he says, and it came to pass that we did go up in the strength of the Lord to battle. So there's the second use of that phrase between these two chapters. So we'll pause here before discovering the outcome of this battle, which we will uh, resume with in verse 19. And we will learn about one more critical piece of Zenith's preparation of the people, uh, which, as he will say, it did stimulate them to battle. He does something similar to what uh, we will see from Captain Moroni later. 
he will align them ideologically, we might say, and he will give the people a sense of cause. He will contrast their sense of cause with the Lamanite cause, which is based upon this grievance grievance narrative that we've discussed already. This uh, doctrine of grievance against Lehi and Nephi that we're about to read about is, is almost like a, maybe we could call it a doctrine of oppression or a narrative of oppression, where the Lamanites believe that they have been wronged and they are motivated by this grievance. And then that justifies their feelings and then ultimately their actions towards the Nephites. There's just one problem with this, this grievance doctrine or this narrative. It's not true. We do this same thing, I think, in our interpersonal relationships. And I'm I'm kind of reading some marginal writings that I made as made going through the text. I know I'm being somewhat redundant because I brought that out in the introduction, but the the same uh, insidious pattern seems to occur, uh, uh, not just interpersonally, but in nations, and it it, um, it it moves them towards division and strife and conflict and and ultimately destruction. Uh, These are all things we can see that that really serve the agenda of the adversary. He's that great dragon who opposes the Lamb of God. And uh, as we look at war in the Book of Mormon then, moving through Mormon's abridgment of the large plates of Nephi, as war appears and reappears in the narrative, we can remember that uh, this war between the dragon uh, and the Lamb of God is the original and ongoing war. And uh, this, interestingly, is a war that is fought by one party who wants it and one party who does not. But that still, unfortunately, necessitates the accoutrements and preparations of war. And the same thing is playing out here in this narrative with Zenith against the Lamanites. Verse 11, now the Lamanites knew nothing concerning the Lord, nor the strength of the Lord. And there's the third and final use of that uh, term, the strength of the Lord. It's now contrasted with what Zenith will say here. Therefore, the Lamanites depended upon their own strength. So we have their own strength versus the strength of the Lord. That's an important contrast. Now, we're going to discover how they derived their own strength. Yet they were a strong people as to the strength of men. They were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and they also were wronged while crossing the sea. So now we're moving into this tradition and this thing that's being passed from one generation to another, even though it's untrue. It's alluring because it's perpetuated by a sense of being wronged and the sense of uh, righteous indignation and justice that comes with feeling that you are wronged. I'll read a couple blocks of commentary on this concept, and this first statement is um, uh, from a talk that we'll return to a little bit later uh, that's, I think, a really critical to this discussion, and speaking of evergreen talks, uh, this talk by Elder Richard G. Scott, something I've referred to earlier in another podcast episode, but it's it's called Removing Barriers to Happiness, and it's a general conference address. And here he says, the Lord cautioned, and that wicked one cometh, and taketh away light and truth through disobedience. And because of the tradition of their fathers, 
President Howard W. Hunter, Hunter counseled, Measure whatever anyone else asks you to do, whether it be from your family, loved ones, your cultural heritage, or traditions you have inherited. Measure everything against the teachings of the Savior. Where you find a variance from those teachings, set that matter aside and do not pursue it. It will not bring you happiness. So that is um, a piece of wisdom from a prophet, President Howard W. Hunter. Now to this question of what what exactly, what false traditions, um, what false beliefs uh, actually led the Lamanites to feeling wronged? Because they say here in verse 12 that uh, they were wronged in the wilderness and that they were also wronged uh, while crossing the sea. And then we read the same phrase in verse 13, that they were wronged while they came to the, when they came to the promised land. So here's something from Daniel Ludlow and his companion to your study of the Book of Mormon. He says false traditions had been handed down by the Lamanites from generation to generation, and with the passage of time, some of these false teachings were apparently accepted by many of the Lamanites as being true. Some of these false teachings were, one, that Laman and Lemuel were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their father. Now, actually, as Ludlow says, Lehi and his group were led away from Jerusalem and impending destruction because of the righteousness of Lehi. Now, two, the Laman, that Laman and Lemuel were wronged by their brethren in the wilderness while crossing the sea, while in the land of their first inheritance. And then Ludlow says, actually, the Lord was directing the righteous leaders, Lehi and Nephi, as to what should be done. Then the third grievance that Nephi had wrongfully taken the ruling of the people out of the hands of Laman and Lemuel, when actually the Lord designated Nephi as the new leader because of his faithfulness in keeping his commandments. And grievance number four, that Nephi robbed Laman and Lemuel by taking the records which were engraven on the plates of brass. And then, of course, here we know that the truth is that Nephi was rightfully entitled to these records because he was God's chosen religious leader of the group. Because of these false traditions, Ludlow continues, the Lamanites had taught their children that they should hate, rob, and murder the Nephites. Therefore, the Lamanites had an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. Now, returning to the text, verse 13 says, and again, that they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance, after they had crossed the sea, and all this because that Nephi was more faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. So that Zenith is now shifting into his own explanation of what really happened. Therefore, Nephi was favored of the Lord, for the Lord heard his prayers and answered them, and he took the lead of their journey in the wilderness. It's very interesting that we're being presented with these grievances here in Zenith's record and in the way that the Book of Mormon is organized, because as I mentioned earlier, we have recently read the small plates of Nephi from start to finish, and we know the real truth about Lehi's departure and about the transfer of power to Nephi and the brass plates going to Nephi and the other relics that had to do with with the kingly succession that began with Nephi. So this feeling of being wronged and this phrase that is used three times where the Lamanites say and teach their children that they were wronged, You know, this really justifies their hatred and violence. It's a prerequisite and a trigger to following the adversary uh, once a person feels wrong. And I think interpersonally, this principle holds true as well. If we can be made to dwell on the idea that we have been wronged by another, and especially 
when it's a kind of a falsified a grievance narrative that tells us this, then we will feel justified in, in doing the things we do, just as the Lamanites um, did what they did. We can feel justified in, in snubbing others, for example, or withholding love or withholding forgiveness. And it's all coming out of this idea of feeling wronged. There is perhaps more agency involved in this process than we might sometimes think. There's a wonderful evergreen talk, once again, by Elder Lynn G. Robbins from General Conference called Agency and Anger, where he says that it's wrong to dissociate agency and anger, but the truth is we we do have some control over when we become angry. So we can, as before moving farther into the text, I just kind of want to show how this pattern plays out as Zenith discusses the Lamanites here, because he shows this phrase, they were wronged, three times. Then it goes into, they were wroth. And so they became angry, but their anger is based on their feeling of being wronged, and their feeling of being wronged is based on false beliefs, an incorrect interpretation of reality. So as Elder Robbins teaches in his talk, their anger in this case, when it says that the Lamanites were wroth, was actually a choice, as is this idea that they were wronged. And it represents an incomplete view of things, and now they're blinded by anger, and that anger is fueled by false stories, and then we'll find in verse 17 that they feel fully justified in actually perpetrating violence and hatred and murder against the Nephites. Coming back to this grievance in verse 13, this idea that Nephi was uh, unfairly favored, and then Zenith saying, no, he actually was favored of the Lord, and the Lord heard his prayers. We have this from Rodney Turner. Uh, This is from an article called The Imperative and Unchanging Nature of God. While the Lord is impartial, yet heaven has its favorites. They are spoken of, and and there he cites lectures on faith. Uh, They are spoken of as the noble and great in Abraham chapter 3, the chosen in Doctrine and Covenants section 121, and the sanctified in section 20, and so forth. They constitute what Elder Matthew Cowley called the aristocracy of righteousness. But they are not born aristocrats. They are exalted by merit, not by chance. Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. James wrote, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now verse 14, continuing with this story, and now transitioning from them from being grieved, uh, because they are wronged, into being wroth. And his brethren were wroth with him, because they understood not the dealings of the Lord. They were also wroth with him upon the waters, because they hardened their hearts against the Lord. Now these two reasons are not given by the Lamanites, they're given by Zenith. He's explaining why they were wroth. There's a connection that Nephi provides very early on in his record uh, between Laman and Lemuel's, Lemuel's tendency to murmur and their not understanding the dealings of the Lord. Here's a piece of commentary from Elder Neal A. Maxwell where he says, failing to understand the dealings of the Lord with his children, meaning his relations with and treatment of his children is very fundamental In fact, this failure affects everything else. To misread something so crucial constitutes a failure to know God, who then ends up being wrongly seen as unreachable, uninvolved, uncaring, and unable, a disabled and diminished deity, really, 
about whose seeming limitations, ironically, some then quickly complain. By believing in such a disabled God, people can do pretty much as they please. It is not then many steps further to saying, there is no God, therefore no law, and no sin. Now verse 15, And again, they were wroth with him when they arrived at the promised land, him being Nephi, because they said that he had taken the ruling of the people out of their hands, and they sought to kill him. And again, they were wroth with him because he departed into the wilderness as the Lord had commanded him, and took the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass, for they said that he robbed them. There's no other point in the text so far that we would have come to the idea uh, that when Nephi took the brass plates, and presumably also the sword of Laban and the Liahona, Liahona, Uh, that that would have offended the Lamanites and that they would have felt that those items belonged to them. But here we get that impression in verse 16. This is from Daniel Peterson. Nephite kingship was connected with and was even symbolized or legitimized by possession of certain material objects. Nephi took the brass plates with him when he abandoned the land of Nephi. The Lamanites claimed that by taking them, Nephi had robbed them. When Benjamin transferred the kingdom to his son Mosiah, he gave Mosiah the brass plates, as well as the plates of Nephi, the sword of Laban, and the Leahona. We're going to look about or look at this transfer of rule even a little bit more uh, carefully and in more detail, and uh, uh, because it's it's this is part of this grievance narrative that Lamanites have that Nephi shouldn't have taken the rule, and and we'll do this with the help of Noel B. Reynolds. Um, he does this, excuse me, this is John L. Sorensen quoting Reynolds in his article called The Book of Mormon is a Mesoamerican Record. So he starts by saying, Noel B. Reynolds has discussed the question, did Nephi's descendants and those who followed them have a legitimate right to rule? Or should the right have belonged to Lehi's oldest son, Laman, and his descendants? This quarrel is the cause of centuries of political and military struggle. One of the strengths of the Nephites claim to this right was that they possessed the sacred records that confirmed those privileges on the Nephite rulers. The Lamanites, the robbers, and the people of Zarahemla all lacked similar authoritative ancient credentials. They claimed that Nephi had stolen the artifacts that were taken, excuse me, the artifacts that were the tokens of power. They said that he had taken the ruling of the people out of their hands. And again, they were wroth with him because he departed into the wilderness and took the records, for they said that he robbed them. Already in the third Nephite generation, Enos reported that the Lamanites would destroy our records and us, and also all the traditions of our fathers. And still at the end of the Nephite history, Mormon, having been commanded of the Lord that he should not suffer the records which had been handed down by his fathers to fall into the hands of the Lamanites, for the Lamanites would destroy them, and that's out of Mormon chapter 6, verse 6, he hid the lineage archive in a safe place, To nail down their political rights after Cumorah, the Avengers no doubt destroyed such Nephite books and monuments as they could find, as Aztec monarch uh, Itzacuatl did, in an effort to rewrite history in their favor. Given the absence of clear references to the Nephites in surviving Mesoamerican records, it appears that they generally succeeded. Possession of physical tokens of political legitimacy in the form of sacred objects including records, must have been influential on the public mind in granting legitimacy to their rulers. That would be especially true in a society where a majority of the people were not literate. 
It seems likely that the ascendancy of immigrating King Mosiah, and this is Mosiah 1, over the people of Zarahemla, while partly a consequence of his possession of an impressive store of other sacred artifacts, also would have involved the books he carried with him. We get that impression from the account in Omni when Amalekite tells us about Mosiah 1. For Mulekite religious personnel, as for commoners, the most spectacular objects possessed by incoming Mosiah would well have been the Liahona, Liahona, the ball or the compass of the directors, and the sacred translating stones. But in terms of political authority, his possession of books that proved his regal ancestry, joined with the ability to write down for non-literate Chief Zarahemla, that man's oral genealogy, must have been an ultimate convincing argument that Mosiah I should rule. Uh, because again, we, we read this in Omni, that it's, it's very curious that Mosiah I brings his people by the direction of the Lord out of the land of Nephi. They come to Zarahemla, a place that's already occupied by Zarahemla and his descendants. And we know these to be the descendants of Zedekiah himself through his son Mulek. So Mulekites, as they'll be called later. But it's curious that Mosiah brings them in to Zarahemla and so they are they are the visitors, but Mosiah becomes their king. So that's kind of what's being addressed here. So Sorensen continues by saying, Without documents, whatever bona fides one might offer would always be suspect of having been manufactured for convenience. With the tradition of Nephite rulership, possession of the records helped confirm legitimacy. When Mosiah II, so this is son of Benjamin, was being installed as king by his father Benjamin, He gave him charge concerning all the affairs of the kingdom. Moreover, he also gave him charge concerning the records. So again, that's from uh, John L. Sorensen, Book of Mormon is a Mesoamerican record. All of this then that uh, Zenith is explaining to his people, um, and and this is right in the section where he's preparing them for war, which is an interesting place to put it. Zenith uh, concludes by saying this, that uh, this feeling of being wronged and this feeling of being wroth towards the Nephites leads to this in verse 17. And thus, they have taught their children that they should hate them and that they should murder them and that they should rob and plunder them and do all they could to destroy them. Therefore, they have an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. So we can see that this behavior of destroying another people, doing all they could to destroy them, and everything that implies, the robbing, the plundering, and even the murdering, it's, it, they feel that it's justified. Ogden and Skinner say the characters of the Lamanites, uh, the characteristics of the Lamanites and their hatred of the Nephites, reinforce a consistent, ugly picture of a people whose false traditions have led them to a cursed condition. It is a study on how ignorance and prejudice are passed on. Some of what we see in the world today, one group advocating hatred toward another group, is captured here in verse 17. I'll come back now to this uh, evergreen talk by uh, Richard G. Scott, and uh, it's actually embedded inside of a piece of commentary that comes from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, so I'll read all of that. The Lamanites came to accept as truth a distorted version of events concerning their original journey from Jerusalem. These false traditions were handed down from one generation to generation, creating deep prejudices or an eternal hatred among the Lamanites against the Nephites. And I would add, as, as I read that, that uh, as, it's, as these false traditions are handed down from one generation to another, 
That, that handoff is done between parties who trust one another. And that is part of what makes this so insidious. Uh, hence uh, why Elder Scott's talk is so valuable. So in Latter-day Revelation, this, uh, the Institute Manual continues, the Lord warned that Satan uses false traditions to take away truth and light. Because of these traditions, the Lamanites felt justified in murdering, robbing, and attempting to destroy or enslave the Nephites. Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught what we should do when a family or cultural tradition conflicts with God's plan or standards. He counseled us to carefully examine our lives to determine what traditions may differ from the teachings of the Lord. Quote, Your Heavenly Father assigned you to be born into a specific lineage from which you received your inheritance of race, culture, and traditions. That lineage can provide a rich heritage and great reasons to rejoice. Yet you have the responsibility to determine if there is any part of that heritage that must be discarded because it works against the Lord's plan of happiness. You may ask, how can one determine when a tradition is in conflict with the teachings of the Lord and should be abandoned? That is not easily done. I have found how difficult it is as I work to overcome some of my own incorrect traditions. Customs and traditions become an inherent part of us. They are not easy to evaluate objectively. Carefully study the scriptures and counsel of the prophets to understand how the Lord wants you to live. Then evaluate each part of your life and make any adjustments needed. Seek help from another you respect who has been able to set aside some deeply held convictions or traditions that are not in harmony with the Lord's plan. Is yours a culture where the husband exerts a domineering authoritarian role, making all of the important decisions for the family? That pattern needs to be tempered so that both husband and wife act as equal partners, making decisions in unity for themselves and their family. There are other traditions that should be set aside. Any aspect of heritage that would violate the word of wisdom, that is based on forcing others to comply by the power of station, often determined by heredity, that encourages the establishment of caste systems, or that breeds conflict with other cultures. Now Zenith provides us with the final verse in this passage before returning to the battle, to this war, and and describing the outcome of that battle. He says in verse 18, For this very cause has King Laman. So uh, he's talked about how uh, all of this, these false traditions, led the Lamanites themselves to this hatred and to this murderous disposition toward the Nephites. And here he's circling back around to what we're asking, which is how could you have entered into a treaty with King Laman in the first place? And he's coming right back around to this and saying, for this very cause, King Laman, by his cunning and lying craftiness and his fair promises. So remember, Zenith was a, was a negotiator. Uh, that, that was his, that seemed to be his strength. And uh, he was taken enough uh, by King Laman's fair promises and was perhaps confident in, enough in his own ability to persuade or to negotiate that he became deceived. And, of course, he uses the word overzealous as well. So then in verse 18, he says that King Laman deceived me, that I have brought this my people up into this land, that they may destroy them. Yea, and we have suffered these many years in this land. 
So there's a reason. We talked about reasons in the in the previous chapter as well, and, and Limhi adds to our understanding of these reasons for why why the people uh, suffered so uh, in subsequent generations as well. And of course, that fundamentally was because of their unrighteousness. But they did indeed inherit the decisions of their ancestors. Now in verses 19 through 21, we'll read about the outcome of this battle. And now Izenaf, after having told all these things unto my people, so he's telling us that that was the other phase of preparation, uh, concerning the Lamanites, I did stimulate them to go to battle with their might, putting their trust in the Lord. Therefore, we did contend with them face to face. Uh, so we can see that this passage that we just went through, where it's it seems like kind of an, an aside, where we're talking about this this doctrine uh, of of the Lamanites, these false traditions. This actually was part of the order of preparation uh, that Zenith presented to his people, and once he has done that, and we, and again we can think of how Captain Moroni would do something similar. He would make sure that their hearts and minds were prepared once they were temporarily prepared. Um, then he did stimulate them to go to battle with their might. Zenith, I think, was a persuasive man. I've, I've said it earlier, I know, but he was a man of words, and he was clearly talented at getting people to do things. He got Benjamin, uh, apparently it was Benjamin, to sanction this trip from Zarahemla in the first place, and he, he persuaded people to go with him to the land of Nephi, and then he persuaded Laman to give up the land of Lehi-Nephi and the city of Shilom and the land round about. So in this case, he is using this gift for good and stimulating the people to go to battle with their might. This is from Douglas Bassett. Uh, it's called The Four Faces of Pride in the Book of Mormon and uh, it was provided kind of cold uh, by Thomas R. Valletta in his Book of Mormon study guide. And, and he talks about this um, way in which we too can be successful in defending ourselves against our enemies uh, in, in calling upon the power of the Lord. Uh, so Bassett says this, President Spencer W. Kimball issued the following warning. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is the special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. President Kimball did not say that we should never revert to a military solution, but he connected the military with a spiritual perspective. As President Abraham Lincoln paced the floor, wondering who would be the victor, north or south, his secretary said, Mr. Lincoln, I hope the Lord is on our side. To this, the president responded, I hope we are on the Lord's side. Both Zenith and Lincoln understood that righteousness in the defense of freedom is a key component. President Ezra Taft Benson was equally yoked with the Book of Mormon prophets in declaring that our freedom is directly tied to our obedience, following are three statements by President Benson relative to this principle. Quote, I do not believe the greatest threat to our future is from bombs or guided missiles. I do not think our civilization will die that way. I think it will die when we no longer care, when the spiritual forces that make us wish to be right and noble die in the hearts of men. President Benson said that in a conference report in April of 1968. Then he said this, that's uh, recorded in Teachings of Ezra Taft Benson, Before the final triumphal return of the Lord, the question as to whether we may save our constitutional republic 
is simply based on two factors, the number of patriots and the extent of their obedience. And then uh, President Benson said this uh, in a work called Title of Liberty. The gospel is the only answer to the problems of the world. We may cry peace. We may hold peace conferences. And I have nothing but commendation for those who work for peace. But it is my conviction that peace must come only by following the teachings and the example of the Prince of Peace. Now that we know that uh, Zenith prepared his people in this manner, and that they put their trust in the Lord, and went in the strength of the Lord, and as we learn in verse 19, contended with the Lamanites face to face, here is, is how that turned out in verses 20 and 21. And it came to pass that we did drive them again out of our land. And so that tells us something important, too, that the Lamanites came upon them. They did not go to the Lamanites with this battle. And we slew them with a great slaughter, even so many that we did not number them. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, there, there were over 3,000 3, Lamanites that were defeated in that instance, and they were numbered down to the last man. In this case, they were not numbered at all, so we can guess that there were far more than 3,000 who were slain. Verse 21, And it came to pass that we returned again to our own land, and my people again began to tend their flocks and to till their ground. So the Lamanites came upon them, as we learn, but we also can see that when they went to battle, uh, they, they left their land to do so, and that ultimately they ended up returning to their own land. So they must have gone out at least to the border or the periphery of, of their dwelling place. Uh, to, to do battle with the Lamanites. And here we have this phrase again, tend their flocks and till their ground. So this is the third return of Zenith and his people that is mentioned across these two chapters to this kind of agrarian or pastoral way of life, the way of life that they really truly wanted. And now verse 22, and now I being old, I Zenith in other words, did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons. Therefore I say no more, and may the Lord bless my people. Amen. Well, this brings us to the end of this of this first-person account uh, that comes from Zenith himself, who I think is a fascinating and complex scriptural character uh, from whom we can learn much directly, and we can learn much as, as we learn about him as well. Uh, so this brings us to the end of Mosiah chapter 10. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail 
and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.